Hi friends, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Nina Power. She's a social theorist, philosopher, and an author. Between incels and toxic masculinity, manspreading, mansplaining, Me Too, MGTOW, Red Pill, and men's rights, working out what men want from life is a question that both men and women are struggling with. Nina is trying to work out whether men have a firm place to stand in the modern world anymore and why masculinity is under attack. Expect to learn Nina's postmortem on men's role in society, how masculinity's crisis hurts women and their future prospects too, why Nina disagrees with modern feminism as a long-standing second-wave feminist philosopher, how we got to the stage where fear and mistrust of men is so widespread, why NoFap ended up bec <laughs> becoming called a hate group, whether the sexual revolution was a good thing, and much more. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I'm aware that having a woman talk about the problems that men face is kind of like a red flag to some unreasonable people. But Nina has thought about this very deeply. She's a feminist philosopher who is now being very empathetic and sensible around her views for men. And there's a question to do with women as well. What does it mean to be a woman in 2022? Women are becoming more masculinized and men are becoming more feminized and no one really understands what their role is anymore. And it's only by having conversations like this that we actually get to hear another side. We actually get to work out that it's possible to have a conversation about this, which is subtle and nuanced and understanding. Yeah, I really hope that you enjoy this one. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by pop demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. But now, please give it up for Nina Power. Did people try to cancel your book before it was even released? Yes, they did. What, what happened there? Well, I, I won't go into detail, but uh, there's a small number of very strange people who get their, their kicks from, from doing this. Uh, and we live in this bizarre cancel culture age. And so, yes, I have, I have these people who think that talking about sexual differences tantamount to somehow being Hitler. Um, and they kind of run around, you know, emailing people and trying to get me cancelled. And sometimes when I give a talk, people hire security guards to protect me. And uh, yeah, I mean, lots of women are in this bizarre position. It's, I mean, I'm sort of joking about it, but on some level, it's actually deeply horrible. And, you know, <laughs> who are these people? Anyway, well, you're a dangerous, you're a very, very dangerous looking woman. <laughs> I know. I'm terrifying. Uh, OK, so do you think that there's a crisis with masculinity right now? 
Well, I think we're always supposed to say that it's one of these sorts of cliches, like masculinity is always in crisis. Like ever since, you know, I remember reading things sort of 20 years ago, masculinity was in crisis then. And I think in the 1890s, it was in crisis um, and so on and so forth. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think there are sort of a, a series of things that have kind of come together to make masculinity and being a man seriously difficult and uh, a big problem both for men and for women and I, I wanted to try and think about ways in which men and women could get along better and that we could also start to talk again about what it is to be a good man you know because this idea that all masculinity is bad and men are somehow you know inherently evil I mean it's incredibly stupid it's it's not true right most women have very lovely relationships with men and friends who are men and brothers and fathers and there are men in their lives who they really really love and you know don't want to see demonized by this very very generalizing and stupid rhetoric um, about men you know which we've seen a lot of in the last kind of five ten years I think so toxic masculinity um, the idea that all men are sort of somehow got power and that they're all sort of predatory they're all just kind of you know unpleasant uh underneath um so yeah i think there's a crisis in that sense there's also a kind of bigger crisis in terms of the economy and the types of jobs that people are getting you know the economy was deliberately explicitly uh, made into this kind of knowledge economy under thatcher all of the kind of um sort of manual labor and, and industrial jobs which were typically done by men um have been eradicated you know so there is a kind of crisis in that sense as well you know what what role do men have you know and the serious aspect of this would be to do with things like depression and suicide you know like suicide's the leading cause of death for men under 45 in the uk you know it's insane it's like uh, there's a real problem here you know with men not knowing what their role is and not feeling that they've got responsibility and they've got a place you know and i think in terms of our collective humanity, we should all care about that. You know, it's it, this is a question for all of us. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of different ways of looking at um, a kind of crisis. But, yeah, I would say we're definitely in the middle of one and we need to kind of work out together how to sort of resolve, resolve things. Is there a problem with you as a woman writing about masculinity? Well, I do. I do make a joke about it in the book. I do say, obviously, I don't really know what men want. It, it, in the first place, it's a kind of jibe about Freud, because Freud famously says, you know, what what does woman want? And he doesn't know either. So I think if Freud could have a go, I thought, well, you know, uh, so I can as well. You and, can have uh, a crack and even the scales. Yeah. So I, but I do provide a handy list at the beginning because I did ask a lot of my male friends what it was they wanted. So I actually do give a list and it was things like a beer and a shed and pussy and Nigella Lawson and, you know, these sorts of things. Wasn't one of them just to be left alone as well? Yes, <laughs> I know who that was. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there is something kind of like cheeky about this book, right? Of course, it's like ridiculous um, on some level. But I think there's also a way in which we live in an era in which there's more and more transparency, right? Men are writing about their lives online and anyone can look at it, right? So even if they think think they're talking to the to each other or to themselves or not to not to women, we can still read it all, right? So part of my kind of dark mission was to to go and find out what men say to each other when they think that women aren't listening and then sort of report back. <laughs> uh, is it right to say that men have more power than women, do you think? It, it really depends what we mean by power. 
you know so i talk about status in the book and actually how difficult it is all of this language you know of alpha beta sigma um you know simp incel cook soy boy there's all this language which circulates in the so-called manosphere i.e the kind of bit of the internet that focuses on men um and you know what is an alpha man a man in our society right is it the strongest man a lot of them are in prison right is it the richest man a lot of them are nerds right the question of status is like not obvious right the question of what power is is power succeeding on the terms of this world well maybe but there are other kind of values right there are spiritual values there's the value of being a good father there's the value of being just a kind person do you know what i mean like there there are many different ways to be uh successful if you like or to be good you know and we often have a very narrow materialist conception you know that it's just about money or recognition and actually none of those things really make anyone happy they don't really make men happy they don't really make women happy either so you know i've got a big problem with liberal feminism as well the idea that you know women getting jobs as ceos or you know making money is somehow like the be all and end all of feminism like no it isn't you know, I, I think it's a it's a very narrow image of, of freedom and and all of those sorts of things. So and also women definitely have power in the sense that they also have power over men, which is to say the power to kind of, you know, manipulate and and um, give affection or withhold affection. And lots of the things that men do are in relation to women. Right. Not everything. But it but it's very obvious that men care about women they care about what women think they care about whether women like them they care about you know looking after them um and if we don't say that women have power then we're reducing them back to this idea of children you know and we're not you know adult women and adult men both have power they might have slightly different kinds of power um but they definitely both do well ultimately women have the ability to gatekeep whether or not that man's genetic lineage gets to continue which is you know, about as fundamental as you're going to get. Between survival and reproduction, you've got 50%. One of the interesting things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is that it seems to me that there is an inherently masculine frame that is being put forward as the admirable, appropriate, achievable goal that women are supposed to try and attain. And that is, you should be a boss bitch, clap back, you should not settle for less, you should get over your last boyfriend by getting under the next one. You know, it's a very sort of masculine frame that this is being given to, that you should pursue education, employment, status, prestige in exactly the same way that men have typically done for a long time. But what that seems to me is to take a lot of power away from women that fundamentally want to have a family or who take their sense of purpose and belonging from being a part of a community or doing things with people as opposed to things men typically have leaned towards things but it seems like we're saying to women no 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 the way for you to take your power back within this society is to forget the thing that you're naturally you may have a predisposition to and if you do choose to do that then you you've just been you've fallen for the trad wife fucking conspiracy and actually what you should be doing is working at a law firm um, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, whilst on the one hand, we would love to, there to be kind of equal value valuation of all different modes of life, you know, so that whatever people choose to do, we would respect it, you know, unless it's sort of, I don't know, being an arms dealer or murderer or something. But whatever, you know, within a sort of frame, we would be like encouraging, of you know, hopefully, and we would value precisely motherhood and fatherhood 
as well as like getting a PhD or whatever, right? So, but I agree with you that the tendency in the kind of modern, the current situation we're in is to push women into those sorts of um, roles and those kind of, uh, yeah, sort of, um, like you say, previously quite masculine positions of being like uh, having sex with lots of people, uh, being successful on the terms of this world and all of those sorts of things. Um, I think there isn't enough discussion, enough realistic discussion for women about fertility, which does fall off a cliff at a certain point. And actually, the longer you delay it, you know, the, the harder it is. You know, I don't have children myself, but I think that's that should by necessity be a rare position and not one that is kind of the mainstream idea. Um, and it's a very complicated decision for women to have children or not. And there are lots of, you know, some women can't have children. Some women want children, but leave it too late because of economic situations, you know. So um, I think, yeah, part of this is about revaluing what it is to be a mother and a father, because I think the, the culture genuinely um, is very down on that. And it's making it very difficult for people to start families, particularly younger people than me, particularly millennials um, who are struggling to get access to those adult things like property and, and you know, even renting and and getting a job and all of that. So, um, yeah, I, I given that I'm also kind of anti-capitalist and I'm anti-consumerism and I'm anti this kind of system, I don't see there's any advantage for to women behaving like men in this system because the system itself is inhuman and, um, you know, makes us turn against our fellow feeling and it turns us all into competitors. So like in the book, I talk about the way in which men and women are encouraged to be more like brother and sister, you know, almost like rivals, rather than as in some other kinds of relationship, which would be equal but different. And those differences would be kind of celebrated. How have we got to the point where there's so much fear and mistrust of men, do you think? I think it's a combination of things. I think, you know, there's a kind of pendulum swing. We're about 60 years after the sexual revolution. And I think a lot of uh, people are, are currently revaluing whether that was actually a good thing or not <laughs> for either men or women. Right. It seems to encourage forms of irresponsible you know, behavior. It um, turns sex into another kind of commodity rather than a, a form of intimacy and bonding, which it actually is. Uh, you know, it's it shouldn't be treated, in my opinion, as something um, casual necessarily. You know, and I, th I think the more people have casual sex, the more it erodes their love of, of individual people, you know, and, and the idea if you start treating everybody the same, you don't see, you know, the the unique beauty of individual people and you don't necessarily feel any loyalty to any particular person. Right. So I think there's there's the, the sexual revolution has pushed us uh, in that direction. And it it might be beneficial for like 20 percent of men who can have their pick of 80 percent of women. Right. Which is, seems to be how the data skews roughly. Um, but it's not really beneficial for the average man or woman to have this very, very unequal, um, competitive, you know, driven by desire sort of sexual economy. Um, it's awful, actually. Um, so I think, you know, obviously there are very high profile cases where some men do terrible things like the Sarah Everard case would be a recent case in point, which brings up questions of what do we do with male violence and i think everybody wants an answer to that question right men are violent towards each other they're violent against themselves and they're violent against women you know men are 
unequivocally responsible for like 95 percent of all human violence right we know we we know this um possibly even more but it, it is an issue i so i don't think that demonizing men and saying that they're all evil is a good solution i think it's a terrible solution i think it makes it pushes men into a a state of like a self-fulfilling prophecy do you know what i mean okay well if i'm evil then i'm evil um, whereas I think if, if we say, on the other hand, that men can be good and that we can all be better um, and that one of the other things I suggest is that men need to think, start thinking of themselves a little bit more as part of a class, you know, class of people called men um, rather than or not only also as individuals. Right. Of course, we're all individuals, but we're also part of, of, a, of a sex. You know, I'm a woman, you're a man. You know, it's not to say that you're responsible, therefore, for all other behaviour that, that men, uh, you know, commit or things that men do. But if we had more of a sense of looking after each other in a certain way, we might be able to prevent some of these things happening. So, like, if you had a male friend, for example, who was starting acting out and, I don't know, getting really out all over the place, like maybe something bad had happened to him. You know, maybe he was really depressed or upset and he was starting to, to behave in a in a bad way you know, tough love, like real love, would be to say, you know, mate, sort it out, like I'll help you, you know, let's get help for you, whatever, right? And that's what everybody needs at some point. Um, you know, some people might not need that, but quite a lot of people run into trouble in their life, you know, I certainly have, and, you know, I think it's really common. So, you know, it, it's that kind of thing. How do people take responsibility for each other, care about each other more, often in a, maybe a stricter way, I think the problem is that it's very difficult to be proud of your masculinity at the moment when masculinity itself is pretty difficult to define, when everything in popular culture is saying that masculinity in the typical ways that you used to define it is toxic or somehow perverse or wrong. You've got companies like Gillette and um, who else is it that's gone work with? Like even, well, Nike's done it to do with race, I suppose. But specifically Gillette, you know, under they're, they're a company which is built on masculinity and men undermining principles of masculinity. And then from a personal standpoint, you know, when the Sarah Everard thing, uh, like we need to be protected from all men. And then if men say, well, it's not all men, that's somehow seen as the same as saying like all lives matter against black lives matter. It's the same kickback that, that you get which makes it it's difficult to not feel resentment for the entire movement at heart. And that's, you know, it's a juvenile thing to feel, but it's true. You know, yeah. if, if I get lumped in with a psychopathic police rapist killer, I think, well, I have, I have more in common than a, with a woman than I do with that person. And then when I hear that, I think, right, okay, well, fuck you. And I go, okay, no, swallow it. This, this is an emotional reaction that's coming from a group of people that are in a, having a bad situation, so on and so forth. But it's not easy. It doesn't co-opt me into that movement. And David Buss, the evolutionary psychologist, he had a look at the stats around sexual assault from men. And there are a very small number of men that conduct a massive number of sexual assaults. So it is not all men. Um, absolutely. And I, you know, one of the, the, th the points of the book is to actually to look at these forms of resentment, you know, both from women towards men and from some men towards women. Right. So I look at the extreme kind of resentment positions um, and say this isn't the way to proceed. Actually, you know, you, it doesn't make sense to blame an entire sex for your failings or to generalize in this way. 
So I agree with you. Um, again, the question for everybody is how do we prevent these terrible things from happening? You know, is it how do we identify these tendencies in this very small number of men in particular? Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I mean, that seems to me a question for criminologists and psychologists and also in the way that we think about community and how we live together. Like if we were living in a smaller community and we all knew each other, we might have more of a sense of when someone was behaving awfully or if there was somebody who needed protecting from themselves or from others, you know, rather than this kind of more atomized way that we do live in which we we walk around a city and we don't know people, you know, that we are surrounded by strangers, you know, because I don't think it's very healthy to live in constant fear. You know, we've also had two years of a kind of fear narrative being promoted by the government, which they explicitly omitted. And I think this kind of um, encouraging feelings of fear doesn't benefit people at all. It doesn't benefit us. It does benefit, you know, I don't know, businesses who make money off people ordering offline and, you know, off the Internet and, you know, a general sense that people are isolated and lonely and atomized, you know, and, and none of that is good. So I think there needs to be more open discussions, more conversations, more listening, more understanding uh, of both men and women, you know, and if men or women get angry at a certain point about how they think they've they've been treated or something bad then there has to be stages after that you know that can't just be the you know the only move why know? is it that we've got this sort of very low resolution view at the moment of people what is it about the current world that's meaning that it's all men all women all police all black people all disabled people all intergender people yeah, I, th I think it's a divisive logic of the media in many ways, right? You know, we've seen people uh, demonised or characterised in this way in terms of groups. Like, it's very, very useful for the powers that be if people feel divided among themselves. Like, you know, I remember Rave, right, in the 90s, and this was great because there was this kind of collective experience. You know, not everyone went to a rave. I was a little bit young, but it was like an atmosphere where you would meet people who were different and difference was cool you know, and it was nice to meet people who were different. You didn't think, oh, I'm different from that person, therefore they're evil and bad and I must hate them. You know, it was a kind of recognition of difference that wasn't divisive. And I think, you know, what do the media want to do? They want to sell papers and they want to sell things. So the more polemical and the more generalising... What does polemical mean? Oh, sort of um, taking one side in a very fierce way. So like a polemic is like a kind of, you know, an angry screed written against. So so I could have written a book that was like a polemic against men. You know, I could have written I hate men or whatever, but it's not true. Right. It would have been a lie. You know, there are many men I love. Uh, so it would have been ridiculous. But, you know, it's, it's a form of writing if you want to say something in a kind of over the top sort of way. And I think, you know, the media thrives on these kind of generalizations and these kind of like claims because they precisely because people will click on them and they'll be irritated. And, you know, so I think the more we step away from those things and we think about what's real in our own lives, like the people we know, our friends, our partners, our families, you know, the better. And I think a lot of this is also about turning people away from their families and dividing them in that way. So I think the family should be much more, I don't know, prominent and celebrated as a as a form of even even as a form of resistance against the state and against the incursions of a world that makes you want to think that we're all enemies. What about the patriarchy? 
Well, I, I, there's a chapter in my book um, which discusses this. And I, th I say that I think the way in which it's generally used in a casual way today is completely meaningless, uh, if not sort of actively unhelpful. Um, it doesn't really take into account questions of class. There are many men who don't have power in however we define that. You know, there are many men like I talk about the opioid crisis in America, um, which is overwhelmingly affects poor white working class men, you know, in their swathes. And we know we've known about that for a few years um, and the suicide rates and so on. And so there is this kind of question about, well, if the patriarchy exists, where does it exist? You know, does it exist in the bodies of individual men? You know, are you a patriarch? You know, are you oppressing me right now? <laughs> um but also I go back and look at the original meaning of it. So if you look in the Bible, you have these patriarchs like Abraham. And actually what a patriarch is, is someone who takes responsibility, you know, and looks after his family. It's someone who is actually the adult in the room. And actually we have a culture that encourages both men and women to behave like children and infantile, demanding toddlers for as long as possible. You know, that's what consumer culture is. So. And actually, nobody really wants to take responsibility because taking responsibility for yourself might mean, you know, getting fit and looking after yourself and not acting like a dick. And taking responsibility for other people would involve things like telling people to stop, you know, like you've had enough or let's go home now or whatever. Um, and a lot a lot of people don't want to take that role either. So actually, where there's a sort of lack of patriarchy in the old sense, which is people taking responsibility. Um, as well as there being a lack of actual fathers, you know, why do we live in a culture in which it's okay for fathers to abandon their children? Right? It shouldn't be okay at all. Why is it that this problem that we are seeing to do with masculinity and this sort of man-hating, why is that accelerated so much within what the last maybe ten to five years? Was is it Me Too? Was Me Too the the sort of match that ignited this uh well i think it was happening before that i mean i remember a long time ago there were all these discussions about whether men were over do we still need men why don't we just have a sperm bank or something and you know um, that was the real radical feminist approach right wasn't it the 1970s or something that every even the non-lesbian feminists were turning lesbian because they didn't they wanted to prove that they didn't need men there was always a very small minority and i do talk about separatism in the book but there's also kind of forms of male separatism like men going their own way and you know this is also a small movement but it's interesting to compare them um yeah, and I, I t it's it's weird, actually, because I think the stereotype of the second wave feminist as this kind of angry man hating woman was never actually um, true. But now it is true. So like if you're a liberal feminist, like you are, you do hate. You've men. become a cliche of yourself. Yeah. And actually, and actually, I don't think the second wave really did hate men because actually a lot of it was about getting rid of gender expectations. And that was also for boys and for men. It was like saying, you know, we should all be able to express ourselves more and that gender is harmful. Gender, as in social expectation, is bad for both men and women and boys and girls. Right. So it wasn't just, oh, women need to do better. It was like, actually, if we change the framework, it'll be better for everyone, um, men included. So I, I think... I, like I say, I think I think the media has encouraged this kind of, you know, divisive hatred, which isn't real, but does have real effects, you know, in terms of how people think. And I was just looking at some videos of women who are upset about how they're treated on dates or something and by the dating apps. And, you know, they're sort of outraged that these apps 
somehow have permitted these men to behave in ways that like are quite caddish and it's like you're literally on like a hookup app like what do you expect <laughs> like so i don't know it's it's very it's very weird but there's sort of there's sort of like a permission given to to i don't know be outraged um about male behavior even in a culture in which that's obviously encouraged so it strikes me if you really wanted to meet like a nice man and you didn't want to have to go through all of this like rigmarole of the dating apps and whatnot like you'd be better off like going to church or like joining a gardening organization or taking up a hobby or, you know like something in the real world near where you live in which you would meet people in a more random way you know not through the app not through mediation not through the computer which has all your data you know but rather in real life like people used to do that's obviously quite a radical thing to say that you shouldn't just meet people online but i think a big part of that is we've nerfed the potential or most of the potential for the pain of rejection by using social media and tinder and bumble and stuff like that because getting ghosted on a dating app is painful but it's not as painful as walking up to somebody in a bar and them rebuffing your advances especially as a guy remembering that 86 percent of women say that they want the man to be the one that makes the first move now if you wait until the man does that in real life the terror that goes through a guy's head before he has to walk up to a girl in a bar and say hi what's your name would you like me to buy you a drink that is akin to like jumping out of an airplane and that selects for a very particular type of man as well. There is a subsection of men that are the ones that go up and do most of the asking. And there is a huge swath of them that just stand on the far side of the bar making shifty eye movement, desperately hoping that you're going to catch their eye at the same time so that they can sort of, I don't know, like motion you over or something. No, sure. And I do talk about that, the changing fortunes of the pickup artists, you know, the fact that it's moved from real life to online you know, and, and the, there's the riskiness of the early days where it was, as you described, but, you know, also things like people used to meet their future spouses at work. And now there's these, all these edicts about flirting or, you know, asking your co-workers out, right? And do people even work in offices anymore? Or do they just sit at home, you know, on the computer? So the, the possibilities for meeting men and women, you know, men and women meeting have become, um, more difficult as well they become more restricted they become more paranoid they become more anxious and sensitive so yeah i mean like obviously i'm not saying you know people who use apps are, are, are wrong but i just mean it it's definitely changed in some very negative ways and i think on some level we have to admit that life is risk life is you know it, it does involve pain and rejection you know everyone's been rejected it's of course it's horrible right but it's also something that makes you stronger and you know, and, and if you I think if people make themselves interesting and they they have, you know, like they read books and they have hobbies and they, you know, they look after themselves and they're good. They're visibly good with their friends and family like that's really attractive, you know. And that, But I also would say that women, you know, are being encouraged too often to think that they must find the perfect man. Right. And this is also really dangerous and destructive. Whereas actually, if what you want is a, a life and possibly a family with somebody who is stable, you know, kind, you know, it, it's not going to be the a, a fantasy of an alpha. It's going to be a nice, normal man who has all of these social ties and these forms of security and is thoughtful and loves you for who you are. So I think there might be a kind of pragmatic 
need for people to just think, well, what do I want? What do what do I actually want from my life? You know, instead of fantasizing that they're going to marry a prince or whatever. What did you learn about the manosphere and red pill? Um, well, yeah, I suppose quite a lot. All these different stages that there are. Um, I looked. I was quite interested in this story of um, Roosh, who is this pickup artist who's converted to Christianity um, and has kind of turned his back on, you know, this uh, this life of uh, anonymous, indiscriminate sex. And you know, it opens up the question of whether what was he looking for when he was doing that. You know, what do, what is actually going on in that kind of thing? I mean, it's, it seems a bit um imagine a, an awkward conversation where you've you've managed to to pull someone and they've they've put out and then you're like oh actually i like you i want to have a proper relationship i should probably let you know i use these tricks i read in a book to get you to you know like that's that's awkward right and neil strauss obviously talks about this as well you know it's sex for its own sake is like a bit banal actually and uh so yeah, so I think there are all, all these different kinds of pills, obviously, like <laughs> blue pill, red pill, purple pill, black pill. Black pill is pretty good. God pill. Uh, huh? God pill. The God pill, yeah. White pill, uh, clear pill, Curtis Yarvin. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think I was interested in what the forms of resentment actually were, like whether there was actually material basis for the kinds of resentments that we would c- associate with a men's rights activist, right? So. I was prepared to sort of take these grievances seriously. And some of them are kind of correct. You know, men do uh, dominate the most dangerous jobs, for example. Right. If we're talking about equality in the workplace, um, do we really want more women to, you know, work as tree surgeons or on oil rigs or whatever? Like, you know, there there are obvious limits to when we talk about equality, you know, in the workplace uh, and other areas of life. Um, You know, I, I think to go deep into male resentment is interesting. You do end up with like MGTOW, you know, on the one end, like these kind of neo-monks who are like men who are sort of like not religious necessarily, but basically saying, I don't want any part of this. I don't want to go down the dating route. I can't be bothered. I think that women are gold diggers. Uh, you know, they, they point out that lots of men don't reproduce and lots of famous men um, don't have children. And they kind of celebrate this form of like i don't know volcel you know voluntary celibacy you're now part of an illustrious group that stretches back through history yeah why did you find that most men joined migtow or were there some common trends that you discovered for that i think some of them were definitely um upset by a particular relationship going south and that this had kind of colored their impression of women as a whole you know and i, I think you you know, like I say, at the extremes, there are a very small number of women who do hate men and they may be and and a very small number of men who, who do hate women. And they may think that they have good reason for doing so. I mean, obviously, if you're a woman who's been hurt all her life by by her family or by men that she's met, you might have some ground for grievance. Right. So I'm not denying that there is harm. I'm not denying that people are upset and, and you know, with good reason. And sometimes um, there is justified resentment and hatred um but i actually think that's not the vast majority of people i think those positions are very extreme and the same would go for migtow this is a very small group of men um you know some of whom are just not interested in women right that's also fine um you know and obviously the book focuses on heterosexuality and heterosociality so i so i explicitly say i'm not talking about gay men or gay women um 
But I think the comparison with female separatism is quite interesting. You know, is it possible to live in a, given that we live in a very mixed world, to live separately? You know, what does it mean to try to live whilst minimising your contact with the opposite sex? Is there a difference with how the women separatists of whatever the 1970s are framed versus the MGTOWs of the 2020s? I mean, I think they're both maybe looked upon with some bemusement by the vast majority of people. Um, I think they're very interesting ideas. I think they're always temptations or tendencies in human thought. And I'm sure at some point, everyone has thought, God, I wish I could live without the opposite sex or something. And I mean, one of the interesting things I suppose I found out was, so sometimes men, if they start to sort of work on themselves, as it were, they get fit and they go to the gym. And like initially for some of those men, it's about um, becoming more attractive to women. But actually, the further they go down that route, the more they're just interested in looking after themselves for its own sake or hanging out with their bros or, you know, being part of a kind of uh, masculine or male group. Um, and it's, it stops becoming about women, actually, which paradoxically would probably make them more attractive, if you see what I mean. <laughs> but yeah, so I, th I, you know, there are different kind of stages and, and phases, but I think most people know and want to live in a mixed world. But I do think we might need to have a collective conversation about whether there should be more sex segregated spaces and whether it's actually better sometimes for men to spend time with men alone and women to spend time with women alone. That and brings up some uh, bad histories, though, right, of men having holding seats of power, not permitting women into men's working clubs where important and commanding conversations were taking place. Yes, absolutely. I'm not I, I don't think there's a simple solution to this question at all. I think, you know, we women have sort of been in politics in the UK or at least having representation at the, the highest level for only about 100 years. So it's not been long. Uh, and I think it's it's not been an easy ride <laughs> either. Uh, I think they're very, very complicated metaphysical, legal, political and philosophical conversations about what it means to live in a world where both men and women want to, you know, to speak about their own um, position, right, at the highest levels and want to have their needs and differences recognised and treated fairly in law. You know, there's a very ongoing contemporary conversation about what even the words men, man and woman mean, um, which is further complicating things. Um, so, but I wonder if there's a way which we could maybe revisit some of those questions and say, well, you know, maybe some of these places that we made into mixed things maybe it was maybe that it's better if they we move back to segregated time. well i just think i think just enabling it you know without yeah. without being given the label of whatever awful version of this from the past that there's a big difference between having a high class westminster post house of lords bar that only the guys can go into and saying i want to have a snooker club in you know the west end of newcastle where i can go with my mates and we can talk about guy stuff you know there is in many gyms now there are women only sections where girls can go and train and that's because they presumably feel more comfortable just being around other women and you think okay well that's that's cool but if you were to open a male only gym i think that that might get a little bit more kickback can I just get you to flick your light on for me, Nina? Oh, right? sure. 
Lovely. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a complicated um, conversation, right? And it's got to be a collective one. But I also think there's a role for like tacit agreements. You know, like if we if if we if a place is basically male dominated, you know, we don't you don't need to officially make it so. But if it is in practice more or less like that, mm -hmm. then I think it should be left alone. And the same would go for women's places. And, you know, I mean, obviously, people can privately associate with who they like. That's one of our great freedoms is, is, is freedom of association. And so, you know, and I, I just think it's kind of really important because, you know, otherwise we end up all the time with in a mixed world. And that can be quite difficult as well. And I think men and women both need time to themselves as well. What do you learn about incels? Um, yeah, so I, I again, I try to sort of think of, think about it uh, sympathetically. You know, again, this is a group of men who are demonised everywhere you look in the media. You know that this these sorts of um, few high pro profile so called incel murders are often used to demonise the whole group and to say that anyone who who reads incel forums or posts on these forums is is therefore guilty by association, you know, and this is a common political tactic that we see all the time now. It's like, well, you know, you know this person who knows this person or you read this, therefore, you know, you're sort of tainted. And it's a very bad political um, and rhetorical gesture. But so I basically say, well, well, in a way, what what do the incels want? Right. They they want a girlfriend. Like, is that so awful? I mean, <laughs> you know, and actually people like Jordan Peterson, you know, who are very popular very hated by the by the left in general actually i think are actually good for for women because they're saying to young men stop blaming your mother stop blaming the fact that you don't have a girlfriend on women in general sort yourself out tidy your room and all of those basic things that like a father might say um and actually this is this is much better it gives people a sense of freedom and autonomy it means that they're not reliant on other people for their happiness and again paradoxically that would be make it more likely for them to meet someone and have a you know that kind of life so um yeah i think the incels actually are very uh, sympathetic in the main you know i think uh, what and there's a very good documentary called tfw no gf by alex lee moyer so that feeling when no girlfriend where she, in set in America, where she interviews a lot of these young men who post on incel forums and make memes and actually really funny and really clever and inventive. And they they live in like terrible places, like they live in really impoverished working class towns where all of the industry is gone, you know, and, it, and it's really a question of class in a lot of ways. You know, you've got these liberal elites having a go at men living in deprived dispossessed areas who can't afford to move out of their mum's basement you know going ha ha you know look at these sad young men right and it's actually like no these men are like not sad in that way you know they've already su suffering and struggling you know like i don't know this idea that you're sort of permitted to laugh at them is just kind of well there's something fundamental about that right that what you're laughing at is that as a man, one of the primary things that you should be able to do is attract women. That's why That's why the insult of calling somebody an incel is supposed to sting, right? Primarily, one of your functions as a man is to be able to attract women. And if you can't, that somehow makes you less of a man. It makes you kind of this sort of subgroup. Interesting what you say as well about Jordan Peterson. So recently, he went on a, a podcast and they asked him, 
about uh, what does he think about the modern dating market? Some question to do with that, right? And typically, as I'm sure that you've become familiar with on Red Pill and Manosphere places, the typical answer that you would get or want to hear on those channels is, well, it's all about hypergamy. Women are setting their sights too high. They are overeducated. They're overemployed. They're earning too much. They need to raise themselves back down. They need to lower their standards, basically. And Jordan said exactly the opposite thing. He said about men, you know, if you are consistently entering into interactions with women and all of the women have a problem, the problem isn't the women, the problem is you. Like you are the common denominator between all of those different situations. You're the thread that runs between them all, not the women. And that's a really unpopular thing to hear. And yet this is a guy that only three years ago was being lambasted as, you know, the darling of the manosphere who was going to co-opt people into MGTOW and incel and objectifying women and so on. And you think, I, you can't have it. You can't have it both ways. Like the guy's either making men better or he's making men worse. And f- f- from what I see, he says things that are uncomfortable for people to hear, which is take some fucking personal responsibility for your outcomes in life. Yeah, exactly. Which is why I say that he's good for women. You know, that they there is a kind of like feminist defense of Jordan Peterson. You know, and and I think that's absolutely right. And. You know, but he's also kind of tapping into a kind of Christian tradition and, you know, a tradition of kind of morality and virtue. Monogamy. Huh? And monogamy. And monogamy, yeah, which is also kind of eroded by the current culture, you know, which is consumerist and hedonistic. And, you know, so I think a lot of people are coming to the conclusion that there is something wrong with liberalism. You know, we all need to sort of look at what's happened (laughs) and where we're at and how we treat each other. Um, and maybe revise some of these fantasies of freedom that we've been sold. Do you think yeah. that the sort of dominant liberal culture makes women unhappy? I, I think in some cases, yes. I think it, it's it's not obvious that the apex of female existence um, involves being kind of like well paid and lonely. And you know, I I mean, for anybody, because because we're human beings, we're social beings, you know, and and so. Obviously, I'm against this system in general um, and I'm against it for men and I'm against it for women, you know, and I think it's, yeah, it's sad when we're not more sympathetic to each other and we're not more in touch with each other and we think that success is like getting a well-paid job in the city. That's the peak of what you're supposed to achieve in the modern era. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just rubbish. And most people have a breakdown at some point anyway because they realise that it's rubbish. The um, I had Greg McEwen on the show, author of Essentialism, and he's been paid to work with these huge companies, Disney executives, Nike executives, you know, the, the peak of the peak of the peak in terms of people that have been hard-charging type A go-getters. He said he was working with this one executive who had said to him that um, he'd been he'd finally got the position that he wanted, board member at some huge company. And this guy had been doing, you know, 80-hour weeks for 20 years. And Greg sits down, and they're going to have this conversation. And he said, um, my son won't talk to me. And Greg was like, well, I thought we were having this conversation. You've just made your board member thing. And he said, yeah, but my son's left the house. My son won't talk to me. He's like, okay. Um, what? What's the problem with this? Like, you, how how can we move forward? So, well, it turns out that 
for the last 20 years, all I've been doing is working and I've had my ladder leaned up against a wall that I really thought that I wanted to climb. And now it turns out that my ladder is leaning up against the wrong wall. And I now don't have a relationship with my son. And this guy broke down and said, well, I would give it all back if I could yeah. have this relationship with my child. But you've missed it. And that child's now 20 years old or something. And that's gone. You don't get to have that relationship anymore. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think a lot of people are realizing what's important in life. And it, it isn't work. It's your family and your friends and, you know, looking after yourself and enjoying nature and being outside, you know. And I, I don't think we need more people to do more things. You know, we need more people to do fewer things, <laughs> you know, like to sort of chill out. I mean, of course, there's always economic pressures, you know, and that's another side of it. We need to think about ways in which people can live and live well and have families if they want to have them you know, without this kind of endless struggle and churn and, you know, just nightmare. Why is it that any male movement seems to get associated with the far right? Yeah, this is um, this is an interesting question. I, I don't directly talk about this, the political dimension in the book, but I do that explicitly, like for a good reason, which is to say, I didn't want to go down this whole route of discussing, you know, this um, so, supposed association but I think it reaches absolutely absurd levels I don't think it's true by the way I don't think you know I think this is a kind of left liberal smear you know I mean women who say that women exist are now called far right for god's sake you know I mean this is like the use of the words Nazi and fascist and far right are so removed from reality and actually offensive historically you know the idea that anyone who disagrees with this very specific left liberal position which was invented five minutes ago is like somehow a member of the BMP or whatever. I mean, it's insane, right? And there are so many people who are now so politically dispossessed, including a lot of women, and like the whole of Mumsnet, for example, right, are hardly, you know, uh, members of Stormfront or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, it's mental. So, you know, there's a kind of general political problem with the rhetoric. But, you know, even something like NoFab, like this movement for um, men who want to stop masturbating and watching and stop watching porn, which I talk about in the book briefly. And I'm, you know, I think is a great idea and it seems really supportive. Um, that's been now designated a hate group, you know. You are kidding me. No, no. And you're like, this is this is absolutely mental. You know, this. You... NoFab, NoFab has been designated a hate group, a bunch yeah, of but... men that are focusing on not touching their penis all day are a hate group what do they hate other than their own penis well i suppose the implication might be that they they use some of the same forums or that they you know i don't know that they but they must hate women because if you don't want to masturbate to horrible images of women on drugs you know being filmed like therefore there's something wrong with you and you're some sort of misogynist i don't know it's mental you know i think the other thing is like people need to these groups these sort of anti-hate group groups which are actually themselves hateful and they need to create nazis right they need to say you know more and more people are nazis because that's just what they do like they need there to be all of these apparently hate-filled people that there aren't in fact you know there are just people who disagree which is reality you know um so yeah you have this kind of like uh hatred production industrial complex you know where these all these people are running around going like these people hate and you know and you're allowed to hate the people who hate that's the other paradox of this so is it a case the that calling someone far right is now just a easy to accuse difficult to get off you piece of slime that can be thrown at basically anybody that you seem to have a viewpoint which you're not very happy with yes right okay and that's that's why 
men that decide to not engage with women, men that decide to do semen retention, that gym culture as well I've seen is associated yeah. with a slide, like a, a, a gateway to the alt-right, going to the gym. <laughs> and you think, fucking hell. So you, I heard you talk, it's not in the book, but I heard you talk about the purity spiral on another show. Can you explain that? Because I was really interested. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not my idea. It's obviously been around for a long time. I mean, there are... But it's the first time that I heard it, so not obviously to me. Uh, yeah, which is sure, why I need you to tell I me. Say, I just want to make it clear that it's like, I, you know, I didn't come up with it. Um, but yeah, so so I suppose it's this idea that in like every group or every movement, um, there there comes a point at which participation is, is somehow appro- improved by becoming better at being part of that group, right? So let me put it this way. So like a weak group, if you want to prove your credentials in a group, let's say a religious group, Uh, you're part of a religious movement and there are rules and principles in the movement. Those people who really want to do well would be very strict about those rules, right? They would be like, I'm, I'm following these rules. I'm a better X than you, you know, I'm a better cult member than you because I'm more adhering to the rules. Um, And to demonstrate my loyalty to these principles or these rules, I'm going to start expelling the people who are not living up to these standards, right? So you create the out group, you're like, you're in the in group, and you start to create the group, you make the group stronger by becoming purer and purer, right? So you expel all of the members that have, you know, transgressed or they're not following the law to the letter, but only the spirit. So so a lot of people have suggested that parts of the contemporary left have become like this, you know, that actually people's de- determination to adhere to the rules, whatever the rules are, these new mantras that we're all supposed to agree with, we're not supposed to question them. You just have to repeat them. Uh, this idea that there are, you know, some groups are more oppressed than others and we must kind of, you know, focus all our attention on the most oppressed and here's the list of who are the most oppressed people. Um, and so some people get really fanatical about doing that, you know, like I want to be the best leftist activist you know I want to prove my credentials and in order to do that then it would involve things like expelling people you know hounding people who disagree you know manifesting your loyalty to the group in the in the and so on and so forth um but it becomes like a kind of spiral because it sort of starts eating itself you know and and some of these groups become like circular firing squads you know where it's like who will be left standing you know (laughs) because like everyone gets taken out there's a interesting insight from a guy that I had on the show where he said that an absurd ideological belief is less about the belief and a lot more about signaling to your in-group that you are compliant and signaling to your out-group that you are someone to be contended with, that people don't have ideas, ideas have people. Yes, I think that's a very um, you know useful way of looking at it. And I think, um, I think it was Rob Henderson who came up with this luxury belief idea. Shout out Rob Henderson. That's the Rob Henderson bell for today. Everybody loves that guy at the moment. He's hot. He's so hot right now. Oh, I just want to cite him, you know, because if people come up with a good concept, you know, it's 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 good to try and remember who said it. You know what I mean? Because like all these things circulate. Shout anyway. out, Rob. I told him about your book today. Oh, really? <laughs> I sent him a photo. I sent him a photo of your book and I said, you need to read this. And he said, looks great. Going to read it. So oh, that's that's kind of you. Well, there you go. You know, so I think he was the one who popularized this idea of luxury beliefs, which is kind of what you're talking about. You know, so it's like who can afford to say things that are manifestly absurd as a demonstration of loyalty, like as you put it, to the in group. And yeah, um, 
so we need less of that and more uh, nuanced discussion, more 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 recognition of of the complexity of life, actually. And and yeah, is asking men what they want a bit of a unique question? Because it seems to me that women don't really think about that mostly, because for the most part, women uh, men are the protagonists sexually in terms of relationships and even if you look at the manosphere a lot of the time they're not really that concerned with a focus on raising up or understanding men they're concerned with women's biases and foibles and kind of pointing that out and making sure that they know about it yeah i mean i think uh, in the end what's maybe a more realistic way of looking at it is that what men want and what women want is are deeply tied together you know it's not that men and women necessarily always want exactly the same thing right because they're not exactly the same but none of us would be here if there wasn't some kind of cooperation (laughs) and at least some of the time you know some form of coming together and some cooperation and some compatibility however short-lived right like we're all the product of you know those kinds of encounters you know and hopefully it'd be better to encourage situations where people remained loyal you know looked after their children and all of those sorts of traditional things you know i don't think anything is gained by you know further eroding the family structure or you know so i i think we do get on i think it's a it's a complicated game i try to talk about it in a light-hearted way you know i think the there are lots of different games that men and women play all the time you know, and to reduce them just to the mating game or whatever is 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 um, you know, isn't true either. Like it's not realistic. It's not what, like what other games? Well, just linguistic games. You know, conversations between friends. You know, not all of the time we spend with members of the opposite sex has anything to do with sex. You know, we might be in situations where we're at work and we have to get along with people that we, you know, we might not otherwise spend time with, but we still have to have some form of, you know playful <laughs> interaction you know and I, and I suppose I'm interested in a world that is is recognizes more of these ambiguities and these kind of complex and often poetic situations and and makes them light-hearted right because men and women might be seen as the solution to each of the sex's problems right we might think that our quest for meaning will culminate in a meeting the appropriate member of the opposite sex but but neither men or women hold the secret to the solution of the universe right it's that it's not like one party knows what's going on and the other doesn't like neither men or women really know what's going on <laughs> it's like a collective process of trying to work out together so in that sense like it is kind of absurd and it is kind of cosmic and it can be really nice and fun and playful it doesn't have to be grim and suspicious and you know as if you're trying to crack some kind of medieval code you know <laughs> it's interesting i um i really don't know sort of what i don't know what situation has occurred where so much humor has been lost from society in like such a a short amount of time and it's not even if you take it out of talking about play and games and stuff even if you take it out of non-mating and put it back into mating stuff like flirting as a a function a really important function for young guys and young girls to learn how to effectively and attractively communicate with the opposite sex you know if you're in a place of work now that's a no-no and there's a lot of articles that i've read online talking about why men should basically never approach women. I've spoken to guys, this was a real 
eye-opener to me. I spoke to a, a guy 18 months ago uh, who was 20 years old, and we were in a bar, and I was saying, hey, man, like the two good-looking girls over there, should we, should we go up and speak to them? And he honestly looked like I'd suggested that we go and murder them. <laughs> and he was like, no, no, dude, no way, no way. Like, what do you mean? Like, it was just, they're not, they're not fucking Medusa. It's just, there's two girls. <laughs> and um, he couldn't believe it. He's like, no, man, I've been told, I've been told, like, do not, do not approach a woman if she doesn't make the first move. Right. And I thought, well, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons about why the population crisis may be occurring and that this may be the time on the planet with the most number of people that there's ever going to be. And maybe it's all because of that. Maybe it's just because men are shitting themselves and not going up to speak to women anymore. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I, I think. Yeah, I. It's. I think we all have to ask ourselves, like, who benefits from a world in which men and women are too afraid to speak to each other? Right? It's not us. It's not men and women who benefit from that. It's other people who are going to make money off your anxieties, who are going to be able to control you, who are going to be able to feed you media narratives that tell you that this sex is horrible and this sex is horrible and this group is horrible. Do you know what I mean? It's a way of controlling, I think, um, interaction as such. You know, like, for example, with touch, there are loads of different ways of touching people. Some cultures are really tactile. You know, Britain is not a very tactile country. But if you have even on top of that, if you have a kind of suspicion or a paranoia, about how touch might be perceived like oh what if that person perceives it as a sexual thing when it's not you know and so basically you end up with a world in which everyone is too afraid to do anything right but this is a terrible world right imagine the most afraid person hypothetical person the person who wants the most safety who never wants to be in any risk that never take any never confront danger like that is a bad world, right? And we don't want the world to be modelled on the fear of this hypothetical person, right? So there has to be this kind of grey area, which is open, yeah, to misunderstanding, people making mistakes. You know, that's why Christian culture makes more sense because it's like saying, look, everybody's flawed, everybody's broken, right? No one's perfect. Um, people make mistakes, right? We're all capable of transgressing. But at the same time, we can also forgive each other. We can also ask for forgiveness from each other, from God. We can atone for our sins. We can become better people. You know, this is why I talk about goodness in the book. Like it has to be possible for men to be good. You know, ideally, we all want a world in which we are all better people, you know, and it is possible to improve in loads of different ways. Right. Rather than simply saying, oh, no, this entire category of people is just doomed to be you know, awful. It's like a original sin puritanical approach. Um, yeah, exactly. But again, without the forgiveness and atonement and all of those things that are possible. So it's like it's it's awful. It's like the worst bits of Christianity with none of the good bits, you know. And these people don't even understand that they're sort of acting in this fanatical way, you know. So I think we just have to get on with it. And I think a lot of it is gonna be breaking away from the internet. You know, I think there's gonna be a third summer of love. People are going to come together. Maybe this year, after two years of you know this pandemic nonsense, we will um, you know have a big party. One of my friends, Morgan, tweeted at the start of this year, uh, "Where twenty percent of the way into the twenties, can we start roaring yet?" Because that's <laughs> what we were told, right, toward the back end of twenty nineteen. Oh, it's kind of been all sort of withheld and puritanical, and everybody's been making judgments of each other. But the the twenties are coming back. You know, we're getting, yeah. and then you know, I, I don't think that COVID has made that much of an impact when it's come to 
the identity stuff. It's given people more opportunity to be online and and on the internet, which has maybe made them more neurotic. But I like this is just the path that everything was going on in any case. I know. I mean, I really naively thought when the sort of pandemic stuff stuff started, whenever it was March twenty twenty, yeah. Um, that people would put all that stuff to one side and go, oh, actually, you know, we've been fighting over stupid stuff. Oh, Nina, you idiot. Did you think that a global <laughs> pandemic was going to remind us of our common humanity? Well, you some sort of fucking simpleton. <laughs> Apparently, yes. But yes, you're right. It did turn out to be some kind of like, you know, uh, continuation of the same, but worse. No, it's a catalyst. <laughs> it's a catalyst. We don't come together in times of crisis. True. We split apart. Let me talk, let's talk about the is there a tension right between what women want from a man in a relationship and then what it's sort of it, what's encouraged to be signaled publicly and popular views of masculinity. Um, yeah, I mean, I, as I say, I don't think what men and women want is necessarily that different in the end, right? I think everybody wants to 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 be good, to be you know recognised, to um, help their friends and family, you know, to to make enough money to live and and so on, and and have a family if that's what they want, and that's this kind of thing, right? I think so. What humanity wants is more or less the same. Um, what men and women want might be slightly different in some ways. But it's compatible. I, I mean, guess. I mean, from a from a female's perspective, that yeah. it seems quite in vogue at the moment to shit on men, and yeah. yet these are women who ostensibly need to find a man that they can love, that they can live in the same fucking house as, that they are attracted to a lot of the time the sorts of men that they are criticizing heavily online. Yeah, I mean, this this I have to admit, I do find slightly flummoxing. Like, I don't understand what is going on where these women are running around like hating actively hating men or particular male behaviors but they themselves are participating in that culture you know like i say if you want to find a good man they do exist they just don't exist on like you know uh on city dating apps right because you're the kinds of men you're going to find on there that you might be attracted to are going to be playing the field right they're not necessarily going to be wanting to you know settle down with you right and and surely there has to be more understanding of that, like the reality of that. It's naive. I mean, I've been naive before, but it's naive to think that you can go on these dating apps and be like, right, well, I want a husband. That's what I want. So that's what I'll get. It's like, no, you won't. It feels like the world's been made sort of increasingly pure and malleable to the stage where everyone has unrealistic expectations about what life can deliver them now. So women want men to avoid a toxic gaze, but also 86% of women say that they want a man to make the first move or men are told that they shouldn't objectify women. Meanwhile, Fifty Shades of Grey and OnlyFans makes millions off the exact same dynamic. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we have to think about in the internet age is this question of attention, right? So it's like, where can you get your attention from? It should ideally be enough if we want a monogamous culture for one person to give you their attention. I'm not saying that one person will be sufficient for all your needs. You might need friends to talk to about certain things. You might need other, you know, family. You know, there's lots of different ways in which you people spend their time. It doesn't all have to be with this one person who can fulfill all their needs. And in fact, that kind of expectation is part of the problem. The idea that you're going to find like the one, you know, it's like, no, you might find someone who's like good enough. And then you build a life and it would be in the building of the life that the love is real. If you see what I mean, it's not like all at once. That's why it's wrong to think about it in this consumerist way as if you're buying a product. You know, people are not products. 
you know, they're complicated, flawed, difficult, brilliant things, you know, and it, it's more about the decision about uh, the mutual project. Like if you find someone who wants to do the same thing as you for the next 40 years, fantastic. You that's, know. that's presuming that there's something sacred in the relationship, though. But there is. I mean, there should be. You know, a relationship with someone is is not a product. It's with a everybody is unique. It would be with that specific person that you've encountered, however you've met them, and that you've both come to this kind of agreement. You know, so it's both pragmatic and magic at the same time. Do you know what I mean? And it might be really difficult. That's the other thing. You can't bail at the first sign of difficulty. You know that you can't return your your mobile phone. Like, this this is what I meant when I said earlier on that women are being encouraged to adopt typically masculine traits in order to deal with difficulties in life because mm. that that sort of shielded walled off approach get over your last boyfriend by getting under the next one be a boss bitch clap back don't settle for less men are trash where are all the good guys at like you know they're <laughs> just this it's just this perpetual fucking meme farm yeah. of things that tell women not to settle because the dis disneyfication of relationships has presumed that any minor inconvenience means that there's something wrong with this you have an international a global dating market where you can with a 30 pounds per year tinder gold membership deposit yourself anywhere on the planet and decide to start matching with the people that are in that region meanwhile the relationships that i see most of the young guys and girls, I, I run nightclubs right for 18 to 21 year olds most of the relationships that i see those people having they're masturbating with somebody else's body and neither of them know it that's what's happening yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't disagree. And, I, you know, to actually have an intimate sexual relationship with somebody, it, you know, it can't be done quickly necessarily. Right. It, it's it's a complex thing and it's like awkward and difficult and potential, but potentially amazing. And, you know, this kind of fast culture mitigates against those sorts of forms of intimacy. And at the same time, everyone's afraid of being intimate. You know, I mean, I was speaking to people, younger people about dating apps and, th and this young guy who's very successful on them actually was telling me like the one rule is that don't catch feelings you know like that that the actually starting to care about someone is like the worst thing you can do and I was like that's terrible what so you, you go out with somebody and you really like them and you you know you find them attractive and but but to express that or to say oh actually I really like you that's somehow weakness well that's a, a byproduct of uh, liberal sexual society because inevitably you're going to have lots and lots of sexual partners or m multiple sexual partners throughout your dating time and if that's the case you're going to end up just using the person transactionally and then inevitably you're going to move on so the protection against being ghosted and the pain of feeling rejection is to never allow yourself to care and then you know even with but that's like training everyone to be a psychopath correct you know, I mean, this is like, this is very dangerous. This is awful. Meanwhile, asking, where's all of the empathy gone in the world? Yeah, I mean, we should care about each other. I mean, like, that's that's what being human is, you know. If we regard everything transactionally, then we're just machines. And we're not machines. Like, they might want you to be machines, but we're not, actually. Your uh, left-leaning background comes comes through with, with this sort of stuff. Because I don't know how much how when you talk about the sort of the capitalist machine that is profiting from your inherent atomization and the individual nature and the fact that you feel alone and, and bored and require dopamine, how much of that do you think is coordinated 
because there's this line from Don't Look Up in Netflix, um, which I thought was amazing. And one of the guys says, uh, the scariest part is they're not even clever enough to coordinate the conspiracies that you think. So how much do you think that companies and um, the people that are running the show are aware of the impact of this? And how much do you think that they're just sort of along for the ride on top of appropriate trends that have happened to occur? Sure. And I think this is a perennial question that anyone thinks who thinks about what's going on will always end up with. It's like, are they malevolent or are they stupid? Right. It's like, you know, everybody ends up in it and it depends on how paranoid you're feeling (laughs) as to how far you want to take it in each direction. But, you know, so I don't I don't have some grand conspiracy theory about what's going on. But I think one of the better ways of asking this question is to say, well, what difference would it make given the material reality, given what we're talking about, for example, the encouragement of psychopathy? You know, this is a real material thing that's happening right between men and women, between human beings. We are being encouraged, whether by design or just by accident, to regard each other in this way. So in a sense, it doesn't matter whether people are doing it in some evil malevolence sitting around a table. How can we program them? I mean, yeah, at the same time, we we do know that the elites meet up and discuss what to do. So, you know, not everything is some kind of like delirious weed fantasy, you know, like there is sort of reality to this, you know, and we must be careful about looking at who's got the money, who's got the power, who's telling governments what to do. You know, that that stuff is real and you can find out about it. So at the same time, it's like, in a way, that question, in our experience of our own lives, we can look at our own lives and go, which tools are working for us? You know, how is this thing making me feel? You know, am I feeling more or less alienated when I use these apps? You know, how does watching porn change how I feel about women in general? And so on, right? So I think this thing about beginning from yourself, it's like, to even think for yourself in the first place takes it sounds so simple but it's actually so difficult to think for yourself you know to actually say what do i really feel about this issue and it might be completely different from what your friends think or what's being said online you know to actually give yourself the space and the time to think something through properly like this is really really important you know, and it might mean that you decide to do something different from other people, or it might even put you at odds with other people, you know, but everybody has to do it. Like everybody's life matters. You know, we're not just cogs in a machine. We're not just puppets. You know, we're not just people going along with whatever anyone else does. We're, we're all important and everything that we think is important and everything we do is important because it contributes to the whole, you know, which we're a part of. So. I think, yeah, we have to start with ourselves and the way that we're living. And I've had to do this. You know, I've done this in relation to alcohol, you know, it was destroying my life, for example. You know, lots of people struggle with addiction at some point, whether to, to loads of different things. You know, we live in a world that also pushes things that are really bad for you, <laughs> like all the time, you know, and people have to be realistic and they have to confront that and they have to be strong. And just because everybody else does something, if it's really bad for you, you shouldn't be doing it. You know, and that's also taking responsibility. Is that become a more difficult path to walk, do you think, recently? I don't know. I mean, I think because a lot of people have struggled with addiction of one kind or another, once people are getting to grips with that, however difficult it is, you start to recognise it in other people, I think. You know, and I think you have a lot more respect for, for other people and for yourself, actually. However difficult it is, and I'm not saying it's easy, 
um, it's hard to take your life in hand to take charge of it you know it's much easier just to be passive and consumerist and go along with whatever is easy it's hard to take a stand you know yeah talking about jordan peterson when i saw him live in manchester a few years ago someone asked him a question that was basically the depth of my consciousness causes me to suffer is mm -hmm. it or a blessing or a curse to feel everything so deeply and i, I really really thought i like it's one guy's tweet from four and a half years ago and it's still stuck with me because it's a question i think that i've asked myself a lot as well that you think well regressing to some lower resolution form of viewing the world caring less thinking less paying less attention that would make life easier it would make relationships easier not catching feelings you know not catching feelings about life would make life easier and is ignorance bliss like that's you know, that's a genuine question to ask. I think suffering is unavoidable. I think life involves suffering no matter what you do. And even if you try to uh, avoid it, or especially if you try to avoid it, there'll still be suffering, right? You're never going to be able to not confront suffering in your life, in everybody's life. There is going to be at least a moment, if not several moments of severe suffering. And I think the more we understand that as a you know, that life is in some ways tragic, but it's also beautiful because it's tragic, you know, and that if we understand that suffering is something that we all share and it's not apportioned out to particular groups and some groups suffer and others don't, we all suffer. You know, it's human to suffer. And I think that's a better starting point. I actually think that's paradoxically a more optimistic starting point, you know, than saying, oh, we can avoid suffering and we should protect ourselves. Um, because well, you can't. <laughs> isn't that part of the conversation between men and women as well, that mm -hmm. men's suffering a lot of the time is kind of pointed at as, well, yeah, but it's not as bad as the whatever, choose your intersectional protected group, the black, exactly. lesbian, disabled person that's allergic to avocados, like whatever it might be, like they're, they're having a really bad day. No, exactly. And I think there's, there's something extremely dangerous as if there's a finite amount of suffering to go, go around and some people's suffering matters and other people's suffering doesn't, right? That's just not true. You know, it's like suffering is suffering, right? And, and it's shared by humanity. That's what I mean. It's like saying women should care about the male suicide rate, you know, because their suffering also affects women, right? It affects all of us. Well, that's a father, a brother, a son. Exactly. You know, and even collectively, you know, apart from the intimate relations and all of the pain that it, that it causes, it's, it's also a sorry indictment of us as a species, you know. If you've got vast quantities of unhappy people, whether they're women or men or whatever, you know, it says something about us as a whole. We should be trying to think about the reality of suffering, you know, and then how do we collectively deal with it and mitigate it where we can, you know, but we can't avoid it. We can't fully eliminate suffering. This is where you end up with horrible dystopias where like computers are telling us what to do and, you know, you all have to stay indoors and eat bugs and live in a pod and you know then you're safe but finally that's not, that's not life what are the masculine traits that you think that should be retained then yeah okay so i mean i say look just because we're modern it doesn't mean that everything our ancestors thought was nonsense in fact they were like really onto something so i talk about things like courage and loyalty and even the very idea of virtue you know virtue as a word is actually tied to the word for man like via the same word, the root word that we get virility from. So, so 
morality or virtue and masculinity are deeply tied together historically. And the idea of what it means to be a good man, like for the Greeks, would be to be aware of your own strength, but not to deploy it recklessly, right? It would be knowing, having the judgment to know when to be strong. Like that's what it would be to be a good man. It would be to be courageous, but also exercise judgment, you know, not just to be like some kind of crazy warrior or something like that. Um, so it would be things to do with, you know, older virtues, but also a kind of fusion maybe of like the Christian virtues and the, the classical virtues, or even frankly, any discussion of virtue whatsoever. It just to even begin that discussion and say, well, what virtues should we all be, you know, uh, encouraged to practice, you know, and, and virtue is a practice. It's not just saying I'm a good person because I think this and that it's it's a way of behaving, you know, that you have to work on. And, you know, you could people can change their lives. People can say I was acting badly or I was misguided. I had the wrong idea. I was an addict, whatever. And they can go, actually, no, I'm not that anymore. I'm going to make a concerted effort to do this better. I'm going to be a better father. I'm going to look after my health. I'm going to, you know, try and be kind every day, whatever it is. You know, everybody can make positive changes. I think the UK has a particular problem with this. I think the UK has a particular problem with high agency, high sovereignty behavior. It seems to me to be a very non-player character thinking community at least in less cosmopolitan places so in london perhaps less so but you know you go to a newcastle a liverpool a birmingham you know and you've got a million people one and a half million people or something and no one news coming in no one news going out the people are born live and die there and their thinking patterns follow that as well and it's my least favorite part about the uk my least favorite thing is the fact that it encourages other, it discourages other people from doing new things, from changing their modes of thinking and from striking out on their own. But I mean, you know, but to, maybe to, to play devil's advocate, I mean, if those ways of thinking are good and kind and, you know, involve loyalty and fidelity and friendship and was taking responsibility, then you wouldn't necessarily need or want to change them, if you saw what I mean. Like, there's nothing good about... Um, the city or you know or london or i know honestly like um in and of itself right or doing random new things right just for their own sake you can you can lead a highly frivolous and hedonistic life you know i mean it's it's there are lots of different ways of living for sure and there are more ways of doing that in the city but if you want to stay where you somewhere that you love with people that you love and you know even within that situation you can if you're drinking too much or if you're, you know, staying away from your family too much, you can even make you can make those changes. You can make shifts and alterations in your behavior, however so small you're. My point there is that I think people who would dis let's say that they were drinking too much, if that's what the norm is. And in the UK, we have a huge binge drinking culture, yeah. which, you know, my industry contributes to. Um, if as soon as you start to peel off from this and I saw this, I did. A thousand days sober, I did six months sober as a productivity tool. And I saw firsthand the way that people respond. They look at you. Alcohol is the only drug where if you don't do it, people assume that you have a problem. Mm -hmm. Like the only reason that you wouldn't be drinking is because of a dependency. And that is like a microcosm for pick whatever it is that you want to do. I want to start a business. I want to travel the world. I want to do whatever. There is a small town mentality that I think has become extrapolated across a lot of the UK. And it's stopping people from enacting what they gutturally, intuitively know 
to be true and instead making them more prone to just the race at the bottom of the brainstem, whatever the path of least resistance is, to do what everybody else does. And that hive mind thinking, like, you know, there are people out there who would be able to make changes and be positive influences downstream on the people around them that are terrified of doing it because of the culture that would isolate them for being the person that decides to do something differently. And when I've been in America, it is not like that at all. It is really, really not like that based on my experience. I mean, you say that, but I was recently in New York and Boston and people were extremely conformist on the mask front and all of the COVID stuff in a way that people in Britain are not. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so, I can see that. You know, and so and that kind of shocked me too. And I know it's it's even more politicized over there, you know, in terms of red and blue states and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think it, it may be also in the question of age. You know, I think if people... Look, people do copy each other. We copy. We're very mimetic, right? We 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 follow what other people do. We if someone likes something, we're interested in it because they like it. You know, like we're we're because we're social creatures, you know. And but I think at certain points, like if someone is going down a path that's bad for them, if they if it doesn't go too too badly wrong and they manage to survive, they there does come like crisis points in people's lives even if they're doing what everyone else does and even if they're sort of behaving in a normal way i think at some point everyone will have an experience with a with a crisis or something bad will happen you know their parents will die or you know some some tragedy will happen that will cause them to sort of maybe think about their life you know fundamentally um and that often brings about great change, you know. So, so I don't know. I, I think I'm kind of um, optimistic, even on the basis of this tragic worldview. Like I think I would put it that way. What about yeah. the future of masculinity? Are you optimistic for that? Well, like I say, I think you know. I mean, I I wrote a book. A book is just a book, right? <laughs> it will be read by like ten people. That's fine. So, I mean, you know, what well, as much as we can do, I think the vast majority of things that we do that matter are in real life. You know, it's our real life interactions with people. It's not arguing online. It's not anonymous encounters. It's, you know, who we are and how we behave to the people around us, you know, and that's real life. Like it's, um, it's about that. And I think it's about having more sympathy, not buying into these media narratives of resentment, not giving into these feelings of generalization and sweeping statement and, you know, and from being reminded that clickbait is just clickbait. It's not it's not real, you know, and the feelings that you have towards your father and your brother or your friend or your partner are real. Like those are the real things. Right? As and people they- spend increasing time online, that becomes life, though. You know, sure, I, I screen know. time can outweigh real lifetime. No, exactly. And everybody has, you know, anyone who spends any time online and struggles with this question, you know, especially if your livelihood is tied up with it and whatnot, or you have to promote stuff or whatever. I mean, I don't disagree. But if if you had to sit down, if everybody had to sit down and make a list of all the things they valued, right? I In the end, I doubt that very many people would put YouTube Instagram, above yeah. my father. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, I think that would be very weird if people did do that. And I think, um, you know, so we need to, you know, and it is a dangerous time. I think we're heading into a more virtual world. And I think we need to be very, very careful and critical about that, you know, for all of its advantages and benefits and delights and shiny baubles. Like we're still human. We're still 
the same in many ways as people from 2000 years ago who didn't have the fucking internet you know like it's like <laughs> we've got to remember our ancestors you know because they weren't wrong about everything nina power ladies and gentlemen what do men want masculinity and its discontents will be linked in the show notes below where should people go if they want to keep up to date with you the other stuff that you do oh uh I don't know. I have a weird substack where I write poetry poems. <laughs> I looked at it today. It's cool. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I think more mainstream wise, I have a Facebook writers page. Uh, oh, I don't know. There's just sort of various videos on YouTube and stuff, but I don't have a Twitter or a Instagram or I don't know. I'm like Gen X. I'm sort of like between the boomers and the good for you. Millennials. So we, I don't know. We're a bit in the middle. We're a bit weird. I appreciate you, Nina. I really, really like this book. I think it's a cool message. And um, yeah, I think it'll have some good impact. I genuinely do. So well done with it. Oh, well, thanks, Chris. It was lovely to talk to you.